0: Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Amafidon. Thanks for tuning in. Tonight, we begin in Jamaica Plain. This weekend, JP Porch Fest lovers learned the best seat in the house is actually in front of it. On Saturday, porches across Jamaica Plain got ready for one of the most unique neighborhood events of the year. In its eighth year, J.P. Porch Fest is a celebration of art, music, and community. From 12 to 6 p.m., music lovers walked from porches, front yards, and driveways, taking in an array of music from jazz, folk, rock, blues, and more. The event, produced by Dunamis, happened across 50 venues, including five central gathering spots where attendees could congregate for a moment of togetherness. BNN News had a chance to hop from three different locations and couldn't have had more fun.
1: It's a great opportunity to play for new people, and uh, we've been lucky that the crowds hang around, and it's a nice well, we're lucky to have Dave's porch, for one thing, so it's easy for us to join in.
2: I actually lived in JP for a long time. I don't anymore, but um, I live not far away from here, and it's great to come and uh, play here on, on Dave's porch. And, you know, it seems like we always get a bigger crowd every year when we do Porch Fest. I think Porch Fest itself has probably become a bigger deal than it was. Back during the horrible year of 2020, we decided that there's too risky to rehearse inside the house but we'd come out and set up on the porch in the springtime and uh, nobody got sick it worked well and a lot of people stopped by and said oh my god I haven't seen live music in a year Yes. so that was fun. <laughs> to me it's really exciting to see all these people walking around the street you see a group of 8 to 10 people coming in checking out us you know checking out other groups so I just think the exposure and the experience are, you know, a great opportunity. We've all got that run deep. Bands. I'm just
1: most excited to walk around. I get just such good vibes, like everyone's hanging out, having a good time.
2: Uh, I think it's just fun to like scan the neighborhoods you know it's all houses
1: we've seen and then all of a sudden there's a uh, full-fledged band in the driveway you know so it's fun to just kind of yeah good vibes nice people and moving as a unit you know to the next one so uh,
2: yeah it's good and we see all of these huge venue type of concerts, but at the end of the day, a lot of people aren't able to get to those places to experience the art because it's literally just out of their budget. It's out of their economic reach. And so festivals like JP Porch Fest, with all of the performers being volunteers, it is just a way to bring high quality art to everybody because everyone deserves to experience it.
0: Meanwhile in Codman Squares, Dr. Loesch Family Park, Love Your Menzies broke stigmas while offering support in Friday's period pop-up. There is a national tampon shortage, but the team of Love Your Menzies are here to make sure the needs of girls and women in Boston are being met. Executive Director Bria Gadsden was present with colleagues for distribution of menstruation products on the warm Friday evening at the period pop-up in Dr. Loesch Family Park in the
3: blue bags we have menstrual products for the community. Um, There are organic pads and tampons. Also right here we have some herbal tea from Ines Organics. Uh, We also have uh, these Semaine PMS support capsules, so they're great Um, if someone has period pain. It's all natural. Um, We met the founders and, and they're amazing women who are passionate about addressing period pain, which is something we don't talk about enough in our community, but something that many people experience.
0: And come the residents did, not only to help themselves, but to help others.
3: So I work for Commonwealth Mental Health and Wellness on an IHT team, and I'm also an intern with Commonwealth. So I am collecting these supplies for a community support event that I plan on uh, putting on as part of my internship and as part of Commonwealth Mental Health and Wellness, providing some community
0: support. But what they found inside these waterproof bags was more than just product. Inside lay comfort and acceptance
3: leaving a legacy is really important loving your body is really important and it's important to know yourself and don't let anyone tell you anything different and it's important to understand who you are and what you're becoming and being able to honor you and what your body does in the process is a good thing and don't let anyone tell you anything different you are who you are and it's okay
0: Love Your Menzies is on a mission for women to flow through life unapologetically. And the legacy that we leave behind for young girls is just as important. The ability to live without shame.
3: As a female, we all uh, have a menstrual cycle. And it's not something that you should be ashamed or embarrassed about. It's something that you should cherish and uh, take care of and take care of yourself and have proper hygiene and so forth. Our body is a temple, and we need to learn to love our temple. And what pours out of our temple is not actually a bad thing. It benefits because it leads to motherhood. So the more these pop-ups come up for Love Your Menses, you learn to love who you are and what's been given to you. And for me, being able to honor this group and honor my child and what she's going through and what will happen next is really important.
0: Gun violence is on the rise in Massachusetts, largely affecting communities of color in the city. In the South End, a grieving mother turns a day of pain into uplift in her quest to end gun violence and police brutality. On August 21, 2012, Carla Sheffield's son, Burrell Bo Ramsey, was shot and killed in what should have been a routine traffic stop. Ten years later, Carla has no clear answers, nor has the officer involved been held accountable. For the last seven years, Carla has hosted Family Fun Days for the community on the anniversary of her son's death. Sunday's gathering in Titus Sparrow Park was the first time police attended. It also marked a new family loss, that of her nephew John, to gun violence as well. Despite the tragedies, the day was full of joy, food, music, and a basketball tournament to foster unity in the community. Carla's nonprofit, Better Opportunities, Inc. was created to honor the memory of her son by advocating for change, unity, peace, and strength. It seems like every minute someone is
3: dying, whether Roxbury, Dorchester, Mattapan, Chelsea, like it's now branching out, and we need to grab them and let them know they, they don't know people love them. Most of them are from being put out doing stuff their parents put them out don't have their parents so they're learning from people who embraced them on the street and taught them the wrong thing so we need to remove those people grab hold of them till we strangle it out of them that we love you we care show them that there's emotion cry it's okay to cry if you're hurt once you let that out then you can once you identify how you're feeling what you're feeling then you know how to move forward. But if you keep holding this in and you don't know you're angry and you're lashing out at everybody you come at, how are you moving forward? You're blocking your forward progress. So gun violence has affected my family, starting not just with my mother. She's from Boston, but she got killed in Indiana. But then my brother, there's a few incidents. So I had my brother, Michael Wiggins, who was killed on July 4th of 2007 on Arbuda Street in Mattapan, And so that was something that was very tragic that really kind of, broke my family, Um, and then I had another murder happen in 2013 on May 3rd for my cousin Mipson Wiggins. And then recently, on Thursday, we just had another cousin be murdered. I don't even, we had somebody else just be murdered. Literally just Thursday morning I got a phone call that my cousin Jordan Wiggins was murdered in Quincy.
1: And that was, still new, still fresh. We've been doing this for the last seven years, but this is the 10th year that my cousin has been taken from us, but he's like my nephew. Um, He called me auntie, and um, we was a very, very close family. And um, it still hurts, it seemed like it happened yesterday. It really doesn't seem like he's gone. Um, And this event is to bring everybody together and to be unity and become as one and to show that we can be family and to show that we don't have to have violence and that the cops can come together and show that we shouldn't be killing each other. We should be trying to be as united and try to solve our problems without fighting or shooting each other. We send healing to all
0: families affected by gun violence. And now for our next interview, Stacey Borden is the founder and executive director of New Beginnings Reentry Services, Inc., or NBRS. Since 1982, for almost 30 years, Stacey has been in and out of prison. From her personal experiences and understanding of the system, Stacy became an abolitionist, an advocate for women suffering from domestic and sexual violence. Stacy created her organization in response to the lack of resources for these women suffering from past traumas and injustices within prison. I had the honor of sitting down with Stacey to discuss her work, the Women's Empowerment House, and NBRS services. Here's part one of her interview. Stacey, I feel, I feel really honored to have you here in the studio, so I just want to okay. say thank you for being here today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Alright, so so much to discuss, but uh, I would love to talk about New Beginnings for entry Services. Can you talk a little bit about the inspiration and the mission behind the organization?
1: Yeah, so our mission is to really assist women coming out of state and federal prisons and give them or provide them the services that they need and deserve, that we often haven't had in our community coming home from those prison sentences. It just came from a part of me that, from my own past, suffering from trauma, sexual abuse, domestic violence, addiction, Mm -hmm. that led me into the criminal justice system and um, serving the sentences that I've served in Framingham and really being raised by the women in there and noticing that when women are being released 10, 15, 20, some 30 years and going home on parole, they were back in almost three or four months and I couldn't process that and I said wow, really hearing from them and learning that The majority of us are suffering from the same thing, trauma. And there's no resources when we get out. And so I made my mind up the last 13 years ago, my last sentence, that maybe we should get out and start something different. Maybe we should create an atmosphere where women could have the services, deal with the trauma, and help them reinvent themselves so they can live a better life and lessen recidivism. And so for 13 years, that's what I set out to do. And so now we have a residential program for women coming out of prison and helping them really regain their life back.
0: That's so incredible. Um, as you said, it's, it's a very personal, uh, connection and journey for you and yeah. in regard to the house uh, the ribbon-cutting was earlier this year in April yeah. it's open it's servicing the women yeah. can you tell me what a day looks like in the women's empowerment house and why it's important to have spaces like this
1: so uh, the day of new beginners reentry services is really programmatic So a lot of programs we have four groups a day that consists of substance abuse, trauma-informed care, motivational interviewing. The women could have anywhere from groups on housing, how to approach housing and overcoming your quarry. We know that we have that barrier because of our sentences. Um, They could have a group on employee employment. What that looks like because we also have the barrier to being hired because of our quarry And so the women get a chance to, you know, learn about application processes, resume writing, creative writing, um, computer literacy. How do we even develop a resume? Can we put our Framingham sentences and all the things we've done in the prison on our resume to really show that we have some skill sets? Mm. We did a lot in the prison, anywhere from mopping floors to cutting grass to mowing the lawns with... You know, um, industries, building or, you know, um, going into building trades in the prison when they had building trade. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of the different programs that they learned, you know, um, partakers of listening skills on substance abuse issues, how to overcome being a victim of violence and all those things we turn into skill sets. And so we try to bring all those um, elements from the prison to the group therapy so they can really learn confidence. How do they build their self-esteem to know that now that you're back in your community, really starting to focus on family reunification, how do you have the confidence to stand up and say, you can do this? Right right? Get into career development. Let's talk about not just get well jobs, but taking those skill sets and really maybe owning, you know, your own company. What would that look like? Can that be achievable? And so those are the things that we work on in the house. We also have a theater in the basement. So we focus on, you know, psychodrama therapy through theater, through the world of arts. We've partnered with several universities, including Berkeley School of Arts, to come in and and help us learn what does it look like if we learn instruments, if we learn how to dance, if we learn how to um, sing a song or even write lyrics, or even how do we articulate our story in a play-like setting so we can see ourselves Mm -hmm. and heal from all that trauma and turn it or should I say, as our um, great Congresswoman Presley says, turn our pain into purpose. And so those are the key elements that we believe works. It's really starting to happen now that we've opened. Right. Um, our ribbon cutting was phenomenal. We had our um, phenomenal team of representatives that represents District 7, which was Congresswoman Presley, Senator Diaz. Uh, two fabulous state reps, um, Representative China Tyler and Representative Liz Moranta, and our sister at large City Council Ruthie's, who were present, and genuinely were happy to be there because they stayed, mm. yeah, almost two extra hours, intermingling with the women, really getting the stories, understanding the needs that we need to run that house, and so. We're really happy. We're happy that, um, even though it was a long, hard struggle to get open, right. the community is starting to be receptive to us. And um, we're, we're starting to see some love and care of our women that we've often um, noticed that we haven't been heard.
0: Can you tell me um, how many women you accept into the house?
1: Uh, how long that process is? So we're up to 18 months. Um, we have 10 beds that we've been approved by the Zoning Board to house, but we also give services to the community. We've been servicing up to 60 women, but it doesn't have to be limited to that. And it doesn't have to be limited to Boston. It's all of Massachusetts. Okay. Whatever we can do to um, reach out, we have a um, resource guidebook that's on our website. So. If we don't have services here in Boston and they might be in Worcester or Springfield, we have some partnerships and connections to resources all over Massachusetts.
0: For our final interview, we conclude our time with Sammy Nabulsi, partner at Boston law firm, Rose Law Partners LLP. He focuses his practice on environmental land use and real estate litigation, permitting and government regulation. In addition to his practice, he is chairman of the Boston Lobbying Compliance Commission, a member of the Boston Industrial Development Finance Authorities Board of Directors, and treasurer and board member of Historic Boston Inc. In tonight's conversation, we discuss West Virginia versus EPA and Sammy's work with the Boston Lobbying Compliance Commission. Enjoy. And in addition to your work at Rose Law Partners, you're also the chairman of the Lobbying uh, Compliance Commission, which yes. was created in 2019 under ordinance by Michelle Wu. Uh, can you tell me more about what the ordinance is for people who may not
2: know? Yeah, for, for starters, um, it, it probably goes without saying, but I'll start there. Uh, so much of you know policy and decision making at the same federal level, of course you go to the polls and you vote and you and you give your electors a mandate, but there are people who take meetings and they 'll lobby on specific positions and and um and and projects or or budget financial benefits, what have you. And at the federal and state level, this is regulated. It requires registration and regular reporting for lobbyists to, so uh, really for the purpose of the public to know who is lobbying and talking to my elected officials. There was never prior to 2019 something similar at the city of Boston, but of course, lobbying occurs at the city of Boston. Mm-hmm. City councils always uh, making legislative decisions, the mayor is making executive and administrative decisions, and then you have several boards and commissions who also make significant decisions, whether that be about permits, grants, uh, financial decisions, what have you. And um, eh, eh, but But before 2019, there was no way for the public to know who is in City Hall meeting with our elected officials, mm-hmm. encouraging them to make decisions or encouraging them not to make certain decisions. In 2019, that changed, and that really kind of shines some sun on how uh, decision-making occurs uh, within the city of Boston. And it established a registration and reporting system, much like you have at the state level, for lobbyists. So if you're a lobbyist, um, which is defined quite broadly under the ordinance, if you're a lobbyist, you have to register that you are a lobbyist and that you will be lobbying at the city of Boston for the next year. It's an annual registration. But on top of that, on a quarterly basis, every lobbyist and then an entity, so for example, if you're a lobbyist but you work for either a specific you know, lobbying firm or even you're a government affairs person within a company, that entity needs to register and report. And then the client who's hiring the lobbyist needs to also register and report. Oh. And on a quarterly basis, each of them files. I've, I have been lobbying or I've not been lobbying. If I've been lobbying, these are the matters I've been lobbying on and this is what I've been spending uh, uh, on this issue when I'm lobbying the City of Boston and these are the people that I'm talking with and meeting with. And what does that do? It shines a light on, an important light on how business uh, is being done at at City Hall. It's really meant to be a uh, public protection, transparency and accountability tool uh, for the people of City of Boston to hold their elected officials accountable.
0: That's, that's fabulous. And one thing that I'm very excited about that has come out of the pandemic is um, you're able to peer into more of the inner workings
2: of what's going on um, in City Hall, which is wonderful. Yeah, it was. It, 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 it's important that this happened before the pandemic because so much of this stuff happened remotely and over phone calls and emails. And there was less of these kind of in-person gatherings and, get, and get-togethers. Uh, but the what the lobbying ordinance did and will continue to do until it 's off the books, I guess, but hopefully, in perpetuity is it make sure that people know even if they can 't be in city hall and they can 't watch city hall and they can 't read every article and hope that you know a journalist uh, you know investigates how did this decision get made, who was involved? It allows anybody to always check in on an issue who is being who is being lobbied or or at, you know who is doing the advocating at city hall on particular issues and it, it, just, it just it just shines a good light on city hall that especially during a time where it may be difficult to see that.
0: So just to switch tracks a little bit and to pick your lawyer brain, uh, the Supreme Court has delivered several controversial rulings in the last few months. Uh, One of them is West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency, where the um, the court has basically um, curtailed the EPA's ability to regulate the energy sector. So they're limiting it to emission controls at the individual power uh, plant. So, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, what does this uh, mean for for climate change?
2: Nothing good, for starters. To answer your your, your last question, uh, that that is a difficult decision to comprehend and in, in how it concluded. And I, it's tough to say oh, I disagree with it because at the end of the day, the Supreme Court who decided it, and that is now the law of the land. But you know, I don't I don't know that I do agree with how they reached that conclusion. But you know, for uh, just for everyone's benefit, I think there's been a lot of talk about how this guts the EPA's ability to regulate climate change. But what was this case actually about? You're exactly right. Uh, it was a it was a it was a case involving the Clean Air Act, and under the Clean Air Act, uh, there are requirements, or not requirements, but it permits the Environmental Protection Agency, federal agency, to uh, regulate existing emissions from existing sources. In, in 2016 uh, then then President Obama and his administration created what's called the clean power plan and under that plan it interpreted that language to permit um, to permit the Environmental Protection Agency not to, not just to set standards for pollutants from existing sources but to say take it a step further to say listen there's there's no performance standard we can create today that actually is going to hit our emissions targets so not only are we going to require you to, um incorporate these best systems into your power plans to reduce pollutants, reduce emissions, we're also going to yeah. actually require power generation shifting. Yeah. You need to generate a certain amount of power from other renewable resources. And so this case was really about whether that Clean Power Plan or really any other administration Could interpret the language that way and allow the EPA to not just require best available emission reduction systems on your power plant, but to, if 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 doing that isn't going to meet our emissions targets, making you generate energy from some other clean resource. Mm -hmm. That's ultimately what the EPA did, and that's what was challenged. And the court set aside what I always thought was a very general, well-established principle, which is we defer to our federal agencies, and same role at the state, or state agencies, to interpret their own enabling legislation. The EPA read its legislation, it read its authority to do this, and it reasonably interpreted its ability to require power shifting where existing emissions reduction systems would not achieve our country's emissions targets, and the Supreme Court basically said, "No." You know, where there is some question of whether or not you have the authority, I feel like they set aside well-established precedent to, if it's a reasonable reading of the statute, to give deference to the agency, and they basically said, "You know, this there's so much." uncertainty on whether EPA is allowed to do this under this provision, we're going to say they can't, and it really should be up to Congress to amend the Clean Air Act and give them that authority. Mm. But short of that amendment, no, they don't have the authority to power, to, to generate, uh, sorry, to shift power generation uh, as, as the EPA was trying to do. Now, yes, I mean, this, this has significant implications on climate change because, yes, states and cities and private parties can do what they can, to regulate emissions funny earlier we were talking about the number of 90 degree days under a high emission scenario yeah you know I start to worry with a decision like this is that going to become the likely scenario now Um, because emissions reduction that that requires a, a global effort so we have to at least be able as a country to reduce and control and regulate our emissions, Mm -hmm. and the Supreme Court really gutted, I think, the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to do that.
0: Thank you for tuning in, Boston. As a reminder, you can stream or watch the news on demand at bnnmedia.org. Each episode will be rebroadcast at 9.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. on Xfinity Channel 9, RCN Channel 15, and Fios Channel 2161. And starting this week, BNN News, we're moving to a new day, Fridays. Join us on Friday, August 26th at 5.30 p.m. for BNN News This Week, a review of the week's events. The change is temporary and we will be back to our previous schedule before you know it. For BNN News, I'm Faith Mathodon and I'll see you this Friday for BNN News This Week.